Good morning. It is good to be home here at Oregon Hill. And um, just so you know that Uni and I, the reason that we're not here on a regular basis is because we frequently go up to take my mom to church up in Horseheads. And um, she has a church that she's been attending up there. And she started attending it when my dad was alive. And um, she has no way to get there on her own, so we go up and take her. So that's why we're not here. But it is good to be back here. Just as an update on her, she's doing very well. And um, in fact, she came down on Christmas Day and spent the day with us and the Yoders. And um, she just thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, she's 93, and she's finishing well. Randy contacted me several weeks ago and asked if I'd be willing to speak on this the last Sunday of 2018. And he suggested that I use the verses from James 4, starting with verse 13, going through 17. I thought, oh, okay. I've studied James a couple of years ago. um, We carefully looked at it in our small group Bible study, and the book is somewhat familiar to me. So I thought, boy, that's really cool. I can do something that I'm familiar with. One thing interesting about God's Word is that it's like a fresh water well. You go to the well when you're hot and thirsty, and anticipate that the water will be good, thinking you already know what it's going to taste like. However, when you draw up the bucket and take a sip, it's like you've never tasted anything so good, so refreshing. It cools and satisfies. Going to the Bible can be a similar experience. You may have studied a passage or a book of the Bible. You think you know what it says and means. But when you return to those familiar words, especially having lived a little bit more of life, it can almost be like when you've, that you've never read it before. It has new meaning and significance. And then, when you try to explain it to someone else, you have to think about it even more carefully, putting it into words that try to convey its impact on you. That's what happened to me. Randy asked me to speak on James 4, but the verses in James 4 became like fresh, cool water for me, stimulating my thoughts and meditations and leading me to think about God and his word from a new perspective. A couple things I want to say. Lots of times when I'm talking about God's word, I tend to get emotional, so I apologize. But just as an aside, I would encourage all of you to study God's word, even if it's a few verses at a time. In today's world, it's essential to know what the Bible has to say about issues and attitudes 
spend time in the Bible reading or listening to passages. It doesn't have to be that you have to read it. You can listen to it. Look up the meanings of words. Check out other verses related to those you're examining. Meditate on them. Ask the Holy Spirit to teach you what he would want you to learn from them. You can even write them out and memorize them. And you don't have to wait until you're too old or gray to do it. Young people can get a good start on hiding God's word in their heart. Increasingly, Christians are being attacked. And we need to know the truth, God's truth, so that we can be strong as we take a stand. Let me give you a little background on James before we get too far. Most commentators think that the author James was the brother of Jesus. <laughs> As I studied, I got to thinking, don't you just wonder what the dynamics in that family was like? <laughs> Jesus being the older brother. He may have been one of the siblings who went along with their mother Mary to look for Jesus and try to talk to him. We can read about that in Mark chapter 3. James eventually became a follower of Jesus, and after Jesus' death and resurrection, he became one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, demonstrating wisdom and insight. The book of James falls into the category of biblical books called the general letters, because it's not a letter written to a specific cultural group like Romans or Corinthians or Galatians. James' letter was written to the whole church, the whole believing church. Reading his book, his writing comes in chunks, not a narrative like Acts. It's almost as if James becomes a mentor, and you sit down with him. You ask him questions. He listens, restates the problem, and then shares God's wisdom with you. And as you listen to him for a while, you begin to pick up some themes, consistent themes in his teachings and his advice. Let me give you an example. One theme which emerges from his writing is our need to be humble and to recognize God's sovereignty. If you look at James chapter 4, starting with verse 1 instead of 13 right now, James says, I'm going to read 1 through 10. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? 
but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Can't you just see someone, none of us of course, but someone, going to James and complaining about quarreling and bickering? That no one listens, saying that she or he knows what is the best thing to do, but no one pays attention? They've prayed about it, but it just seems that God is not answering. James thoughtfully summarizes what has just been said to him and offers a means of dealing with the problems. He says, your fights and quarrels come from, battle, from desires battling within you. You want something, but when you ask God, you ask with wrong motives, serving selfish pleasures. You're toying with friendship with the world, which becomes idolatry and hatred toward God. You need to submit to God, come near to him, and he will come near to you. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Keeping in, keeping in mind then the theme of humility before God, we're going to take a look at today's passage, again from chapter 4. And this is especially appropriate today because many of us are anticipating the days ahead, the new year. People often ask, ask about what are your new year's resolutions and what your plans are for the days ahead. James addresses this desire to plan, to anticipate, to strategize. He addresses it in chapter 4, verses, starting with verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city. Spend a year there. Carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. James starts with an example of an arrogant or boastful statement. Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. He says, why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. Then he points out the fragility, the temporariness of our lives, and gives a sample of a humble statement. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Let me be sure to point out that James is not saying 
do not plan ahead. He is not saying, do not think about tomorrow. Instead, he asks, who's in charge of your life? You make all these plans, but your life is a mist, a cloud that appears for a little while and disappears. It is no longer. I think that he had a squirt gun like that. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will do this or that. James is challenging believers to take a look not only at what they are doing or saying, but to consider their attitude towards life. Are we being arrogant and thinking that we are in charge of what's going to happen? Or do we humbly submit our activities, our plans, our future to the Lord? It doesn't mean that God is going to automatically cancel whatever we want to do. He's, or that it doesn't mean that he's some sort of puppet master pulling on the strings of our lives and we can't think ahead. He's not like that. It, no, it's a, it's a matter of admitting that he is the sovereign Lord. He knows what is best and what would bring him the greatest glory. And he may want us to do something different than what we had planned. Ultimately, it's for our good and his glory. Isn't that what a servant does? He or she checks with his or her master or mistress first, waiting on them to do their good pleasure. It becomes a life perspective, thinking about someone else first. Pat Williams, he used to be one of the general managers of the Cavaliers and then of the um, Orlando Magic, but a strong believer. Once wrote for Focus on the Family that a humble person doesn't think less of himself. He simply thinks of himself less. What I'd like to do this morning is go back to the Christmas story and look at some examples of people who were thinking about tomorrow and how their relationship with God or their lack of relationship with God, their attitudes affected their thoughts about their tomorrow. Now, these are going to be familiar verses, familiar stories. Lots of times I know that when I'm sitting and listening to something familiar, I tend to gloss over and just, you know, it's just way too easy. I know what's going to happen. I really encourage you to think seriously about what is being said. And especially since we've just covered Christmas. I'm going to start off with Matthew 2 verses 1 through 18, but I'm not going to read all of those verses. I'm going to read some of them. And then I'm going to start off with a negative example. Somebody whose tomorrow, approached tomorrow, not according to James. And this was King Herod. Starting in verse 1 of 
chapter 2 of Matthew. By the way, if you see a flash of pink up here, as I get older, I, I need reminders of where these things are. So they're all in the different chapters. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in, when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go, and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. So then we know what happens from there. They did go. They found the baby, or they found Jesus with his mother. They bowed down and worshipped him, gave him gifts. But then they were warned in a dream to go home a different way. Joseph, too, was warned. He, had, he was supposed to take, up his, or take his family and flee to Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Picking up on Herod in verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So in this passage, we read of King Herod, the ruler of Judea, when Jesus was born. He would fall into James's category of arrogant or boastful. He was a violent, evil man who would do anything to preserve his position of power. He even eliminated members of his family whom he thought were in his way. His thinking about his tomorrow, his future, was that he wanted to remain king at all costs. So when Magi stopped in Jerusalem and asked him, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Herod's plan was to destroy that threat. It threatened his tomorrow. After consulting with his chief priests and teachers of the law, he informed the Magi that the new king was to be born in Bethlehem. Deceitfully, he asked them to let him know when they found this newborn Jewish king so that he too could go and worship him. Herod was furious when the Magi, through a warning and a dream, outwitted him. Once again, his arrogance led to much bloodshed, but his horrific actions did fulfill what had been said through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. That was a prophecy in Jeremiah 31. 
Herod, in his arrogance, would not submit his future, his plans, to anyone other than himself. God was not a part of the picture for him. His was truly a sad life. I move on to two positive examples. Examples that James would have thought, now this is exactly what I mean. The first is Mary. And her story can be found in a variety of verses. Luke 1, 26 through 56, and Luke 2, 1 through 40. I'm only going to read some of these verses. I'm not going to read all of them. But I will try to take a look at, the, at them in light of James's admonition for humility when thinking about the future. I'm going to start with Luke 1, verses 26 through 34. Through 38, I'm sorry. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel. Since I'm a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is already in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Now Mary lived in a small town, Nazareth, in the district of Galilee. And she was a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. Think about her plans. Her thoughts about tomorrow. She was young. She was going to get married. And I'm sure there were all sorts of arrangements which had to be made in preparation for the big day. Appropriate wedding clothing. Making sure that she could manage a household. All of those kinds of things were probably parts of her tomorrow. But God sent an angel, Gabriel, to her, who greeted her and told her that she was highly favored and that the Lord was with her. We can tell, we can understand why the author, Luke, says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. So she's making all of these plans, and all of a sudden an angel is there with her and tell her that she's highly favored by God. 
Gabriel went on to say that Mary was going to be pregnant and give birth to a son, and he even told her to name the boy Jesus. But this wasn't going to be just any boy. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. He even went on to tell her how this would all come about and ended his announcement by stating, for nothing is impossible with God. Another translation says, no word from God will ever fail. It would be easy to understand if Mary had had a million questions and would have wanted Gabriel to repeat everything so that she could make sure that it was clear in her head. Instead, she simply responded by saying, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. She described herself as a servant. She which revealed her humility and her readiness for obedience, despite the cosmic ramifications of what she had just been told. The Lord had something bigger and better for her than a simple wedding ceremony. Eternal God was going to enter finite humanity through her womb. Did that mean that everything would be easy for her since she was willing to obey? What would her family say? What would Joseph's reactions be or others in the town? Submitting our tomorrows to God is not necessarily a ticket to ease or comfort. But we can be confident that his plans are always good. My second positive example is Joseph, whose story is found back in Matthew. And he can be found in a number of different places. Chapter 1 of Matthew, verses 18 through 24. Chapter 2, 13 through 23. And Luke, again, along with Mary, chapter 2, verses 1 through 40. Again, I'm not going to read all of these verses. Just Matthew 1, 18 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, one translation reads, he was a righteous man, yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did 
what the angel of the Lord had commanded and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave them the name Jesus. Matthew, I want to take a look at the many ways Joseph's plans for tomorrow changed. Matthew describes Joseph as a righteous man, meaning he exemplified holy and upright living in accordance with God's standards, which should give us a glimpse into his character. First of all, his immediate plans for the future was that he was going to get married to Mary to whom he was engaged. That's not so strange. And I'm sure that as the future husband, Joseph had all sorts of responsibilities, such as getting a house ready for his bride. So his tomorrow was focused on getting everything ready for this marriage. Then he found out that his bride was pregnant, even though they had not come together as husband and wife. But because he was righteous, legally, he could have had Mary stoned to death for adultery. But in showing mercy, see, he had that unique quality. He was righteous, just, he was also merciful. He didn't want to expose her to public disgrace, so he had in mind to divorce her quietly. The Lord sent an angel who explained to Joseph in a dream what was really going on with Mary and that he was to take her home as his wife. The angel even told him the baby's name was to be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Talk about a change of plans. Joseph's tomorrow went from planning a marriage to the shock of finding out his wife-to-be was pregnant, to considering a divorce, to being told in a dream to take Mary home as his wife because the baby was from the Holy Spirit. And it says that when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, demonstrating for us his true humility and obedience to God in recognition of God's sovereignty. Following that dream, he planned on settling down in Nazareth with his pregnant wife. Good plan, but more change was coming. Along comes the order from Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, to take a census. And everyone was going to go into their own town to register. Once more, Joseph changed his plans. And he and Mary traveled to Bethlehem to obey the decree in spite of her pregnancy. Perhaps they had planned on finding a room somewhere where Mary could, in relative comfort, give birth to her son. Not so. When her baby Jesus was born, she placed her son in a manger, an animal feeding trough, because there was no room for them in the inn. For whatever reason, the young family stayed in Bethlehem until Joseph's plans were altered again by another dream, a dream visitation by an angel of the Lord. There was more urgency in this message, telling him to get up and take Mary and Jesus and escape to Egypt. 
They were to stay there until the angel talked to him again. The reason for fleeing so rapidly, Herod was going to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph did what he had been told. He immediately took his family, left Bethlehem, and settled in Egypt. After Herod died, the angel returned to Joseph and informed him that they could go back to the land of Israel. When he and his young family got back to Judea, the new king's reputation was frightening. Joseph had another dream, another visitation, and he was told to go to the district of Galilee to the town of Nazareth. In all of the narratives about Joseph, we don't hear one word uttered by Joseph, but we can discern his humility by his obedient responses, responses to the Lord's instructions through the angel. It appears that Joseph's tomorrows were always governed by if it is the Lord's will. How then do we develop that kind of attitude of humility? Is it something we can just grit our teeth and do? Does that mean we allow ourselves to be pushed around and think less of ourselves? If you go on the internet or do some research in a library, there are still those things called libraries. You'll find that there are all sorts of suggestions as to how to develop an attitude of humility. Some of the ideas are good, and some are just psychological exercises. But I think there's only one real way to develop the type of humility that James emphasizes and which Joseph and Mary had. You need to spend time with God. Perhaps you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. If you haven't, that should be the first step. It's certainly very humbling to admit that you have sinned and are in need of a Savior and to accept his forgiveness for those sins. If you are a follower of Jesus already, then you need to examine how much time you actually spend with him, getting to know him. He gave everything for each one of us, including his life. Certainly we can spend some time each day reading his word and approaching him in prayer. The Holy Spirit is willing to teach to teach us, to prepare us, and to design within us the correct attitude. If we sincerely want to conform to the image of Christ, he becomes serious as his follower. In thinking about our tomorrows, it's okay to make plans. It's okay to think about the future. Because we know that in the Bible, it mentions all sorts of people who, are, who have planned, who have thought about the future. But it's equally important to remember James' metaphor. We're but a mist. Here for a little while, and then gone. 
God is sovereign. And our plans as believers should always be humbly submitted to his will. James also cautioned anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. One of the verses I want to, or the verse that I want to end with is probably my overall favorite, or I would call it my life's verse, would be from Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. And it goes right along with what James was saying. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. <laughs>